Thank you very much, Father Richard. It's, it's lovely to be back. I've just said to a couple of colleagues, <coughs> I'm living up in Yorkshire now, and I've deserted my sheep and, uh, and birds, and was rather taken aback by people in London in such numbers. So, but it's lovely to be here. Um, I guess this talk comes with a couple of caveats. One is, beware people who say that work is in progress. Um, because it often means a set of ideas in search of uh, a tight argument. And in the case of psychology, sin of sins, there's going to be no new data. There are no new, new data at all this afternoon. Um, so that's the first. The second caveat, and I'll unpack this a little bit later, is um, beware of um, retired academics who, who live off their children's moral earnings. But uh, we'll, we'll come back to that in a Okay, um, what I want to do is to, in a sense, unpack an area of psychology. I hope this little bit isn't too teacherly or too um, pedagogic, but I think it's helpful to lay out um, some of the issues. And then, I guess, open up the possibilities of that area for wider dialogue with moral psychology and... Uh, indeed for theology more generally. So my wife's an English scholar, hence the, uh, the, the, the first phrase. It's a truth now widely, if not universally acknowledged, that uh, bodies and brains matter for the discipline of psychology as well as minds. In fact, minds, um, psychology's default subject matter, are often constrained by as much as in control of uh, bodies and brains. We also increasingly tend to think of people now, surprise, surprise, as related to or connected with others, um, cognitively, emotionally, socially, and so on, and not as the individual subjects of 20th century Anglophone psychology. People are already persons in relation not persons who need to come into relation. Next, um, we've been watching too many lifestyle programmes here, I guess, but location, location, location. Uh, we are situated creatures who literally and figuratively find ourselves in physical, intellectual, social, cultural, moral, and arguably spiritual worlds. And finally, actions matter too. So psychology is not just about seeing and judging and thinking, but it's about doing, which is itself a broad category. And if we take all those together, we end up with what's been called the embodied, extended, embedded, and an active view of the person, the 4E approach to the person. Psychologists tend to like kind of simple... Um, alliteration like that. So an obvious, if, 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 to some extent, an obvious question for the psychologist is how does understanding our embodiment and relatedness in these various worlds enhance our understanding of moral psychology? And by that I mean the study of moral perception, behaviour, judgement, action and so on by the secular disciplines of the human sciences. So to begin, what I want to do is to, to look at one way in which psychologists talk about the meaning potential of the world, the meaning that in a sense is out there already in the world, 
by looking at the concept of affordance. And that's going to then be, a, I suppose, a leitmotif, a theme that will run uh, throughout the talk. In part two, then, I want to ask some more specific questions. Does a consideration of the world, the world again, as well as a person, help us better understand how virtues are acquired, taught, and developed? I'll also ask whether there's anything beyond expert accomplishment in virtue, or what we might call moral expertise. Is there such a thing as moral creativity? At least such a thing that is not oxymoronic. Does it make sense to think of a moral imagination and attentiveness which go beyond convention, um, but which still somehow remain ethical and moral? If there is such a thing, can we see the morally creative as somehow acting in continuity with the life of habitual virtue? Or is what they do entirely apart, psychologically speaking, from virtuous habit? And once again, how might our situatedness, the fact that, that we are in particular words, impinge on all that? I'll imply too that the emerging, arguably more ecologically valid view of persons fits better into, or provides a better substrate for, discussions between psychology and at least orthodox Catholic theology. In the hope of this, I, I want to make a finally tentative theological move and ask what does the world afford, that word of affordance again, what does the world afford, spiritually speaking? I'll do this to help us better contextualise the concept of affordance and uh, to look at spiritual affordance in particular. Advanced warning, I'm going to risk a, a certain disloyalty to the angelic doctor this afternoon. Um, I was told that was okay. And uh, I'll find a deal, if I have time at least, with what I call my words worthy an itch. So we've got a sketch map, map then, connecting affordance, virtue, creativity, and spiritual perception. And so what I'm offering is really a psychological argument, at least the beginnings of a psychological argument. And it's an initial attempt at theory building, perhaps to ambitiously at this stage, also in search of a fuller, more detailed theology. I'm aware I'm covering a lot of ground very quickly. We're flying, if you like, at rather too high an altitude, but we might get some view of the, the, the terrain. Then. Okay, affordance. As I say, apologies for the kind of teacherly bit here, but at least we can unpack the idea. Term affordance was, was introduced, first of all, by the perceptual psychologist James Gibson. Um, working in the 50s and, and 1960s. Actually, he did, even earlier than that, had been working with the US military uh, during the war, but a lot of his publications emerged in the uh, immediate post-war years. Gibson had already established that there's actually more to perception than how we, or if you wish, our, how our brains change energy sources, light, sound, or other um, uh, inputs, for want of a better expression, into representations of the world. One of Gibson's favourite sayings is, is reputed to have been, ask not what's inside your head, okay, in my case is very little there sometimes, ask what, not what's inside your head, 
But what your head is inside, or inside of, your head and my head are inside a very, very rich world at the moment. So what Gibson wanted to do is to say, we need to look more at the environment, at the what of perception, as well as perhaps considering the how of perception. How does it work? He found out, as it turns out, that um, one way to assist the United States um, pilots who were having difficulty landing on the decks of aircraft carriers in the middle of a grey sea, one way to, to, to help them was to paint a few lines on the deck of the carrier to give them some more perceptual cues. You could, of course, pick people with better heads, better adept perception. Gibson said, no, we can change the world and will thereby alter people's behaviour. And the affordance concept takes some of these ideas a little bit further. Environments, objects, and entities in the world are not arbitrary, according to Gibson. Um, instead, they can already configured in certain ways and suit certain actions and engagements more than others. So to put this at its simplest, chairs afford sitting on, among other things, Spoons afford stirring, canoes afford paddling, mugs grasping, lectures by semi-retired psychologists afford sleeping, um, guns afford maiming and killing, despite what the gun lobby will tell us, there are negative affordances. So notice what we've got in a sense is a match between some aspects of, of the structure of objects on the one hand, the forms if you like, and our potential, potential, keyword, our potential actions and responses. So the notion of affordance is therefore relational. The structure of our actions, including skilled perception, meshes with the structure of the world, and it does so meaningfully. And by which I mean that our actions and the world both matter and have significance for us. Our actions and the world matter. There's a happy if subtle pun on the word matter there, but that's for another day. So all this is obviously true for artefacts, but it's equally true for natural objects and environments as well. Um, I don't know if some of you have come across that wonderfully expressive writing by um, Cambridge scholar, literature, literature and uh, scholar and outdoor enthusiast, Robert McFarlane. Has anybody uh, seen his work? It's really, really lovely work. He, he writes about the environment. He, I think he, he likes to be out on the hills. And in Landmarks, Macfarlane shows with great subtlety and sensitivity how the richness of the natural world now um, can be understood through its affordances. Rock faces that afford climbing, woods that afford shelter, boggy moors that afford ankle twisting, uh, and so on. And how these terms, in, how these in turn have been captured and textured by terms and expressions in the language. The language kind of writes itself into the landscape. But our engagement with the world comes first. McFarlane, um, I think, very astutely says we actually need a counter, what he calls a counter-desecration handbook, as he puts it, to sing the world back into being, to re-enchant the world, lovely phrase. Uh, especially in the face of environmental exploitation and degradation. But within psychology, though, affordance was and uh, still is something of a minority pursuit. 
maybe some of my colleagues would disagree with that, I don't know, but having dutifully acknowledged the basic notion, or at least been to the lecturers' undergraduates, um, many psychologists, what do I say, they went back to their original question to ask, how does the mind perceive? How does the mind uh, work out what's out there? Rather than that uh, second question, which Gibson is raising, what is it that's there? The what question. And at the time, to be fair, Gibson himself had little to say about the mechanisms of mind. Um, if pressed, he would often suggest that maybe we somehow resonate in sympathy to the world. Nice phrase, but it was, a, I guess, a concept that some people thought was richer in the hand-waving than explanatory potential. However, fortunately, the concept has slipped the leash of psychology. It's always good when um, uh, uh, concepts get out of psychology and, and other wiser people put them to use. And it's attracted a fair amount of attention, I suppose we could say it's afforded interest, in other disciplines, including design technology, anthropology, cultural geography, more recently ethics and morality, and to a lesser extent, theology. So I'll pick up on affordances in a little bit in philosophical theology later. Um, for now, I'll just say that they appear as a, a footnote in John Milbank and Adrian Pabst's Politics of Virtue. They get fuller mention in uh, Johannes Hoff's The Analogical Turn and receive, a, a, I think, a very good, actually, a more extensive and sophisticated treatment in Rowan Williams' The Edge of Words, even if they're not always named as such. Essentially, that's what Rowan is, is, is talking about. So the result of some of this outsourcing, if, if not yet the theological, has been, first of all, shall we say, the extension of the concept to cover social, cultural and moral affordances. So we're not simply now talking about what it is we're perceiving in a direct physical way, but analogising the concept to talk about social, cultural and moral affordances. Um, particular social situations, a, a dinner party, for example, compared a lecture, uh, might afford or permit different sorts of linguistic responses, polite social chit-chat as opposed to polite listening. Um, cultural forms such as a graduation ceremony or par excellence liturgical forms come already packaged with their respective actions. Um, long waiting and polite clapping if you're at a graduation ceremony. Um, and of course the various responses, verbal, non-verbal and spiritual, that we're engaged in in the mass. I think it's important to, to just as a kind of as a, a, a note, really, to say that when we're speaking of socio-cultural affordances like this, we're not simply talking about people adopting roles. Um, there's a, more of a determinism and a rigidity about the concept of a role. Something like an Irving Gotten would have introduced to us, um, but also arbitrariness that contrasts with the freedom to be taken up and the flexibility of response to, and yet potential meaningfulness of affordances. There's, there's more of a flexibility um, and meaningfulness, I think, with, with affordances. Um, I'm aware of time, but very quickly, Charles may want to say more about this, but we, we can also extend the concept from its primary reference to the external, to include internal matters. Our thoughts and emotions are both affected by and can in turn be interpreted as 
affordances. I, I don't want to say too much about this because it's a there's a, a big long story here, and it's not simply because I don't know, and I don't know very much about therapy, but I think there is more to be said here, and, and it deserves a, a fuller treatment. But to put it into plain English, we imagine the things we do in the way we do, because we've had prior experience of the possibilities and constraints of dealing with objects and situations in the real world. Moreover, what we then think carries its own possibilities for action. That sounds very abstract, but if you think about the role of imagination in Jungian therapy, or in Ignatian spiritual exercises, for example, you've got some glimmering of what I mean. We can think certain thoughts because of prior ways in which we've interacted with people and with objects in the world. Another important development has been the refinement of the concept itself. I suppose we could say it's intention with a growing appreciation that not all affordances are, as they say, up for grabs. Not everything is on the surface and immediately apparent. So we might say perception is not so much direct as discerned. You have to kind of work out what the affordances are out there. Uh, Jastrow's duck-rabbit illusion, do you know the one that was beloved by Wittgenstein? The device can be seen as a duck or a rabbit. Uh, in a way, um, could be thought of as uh, something that has ambiguous affordances. It can be seen as duck or, or, or rabbit. Likewise, Escher's staircases um, afford descending, permit descending or ascending, depending on how we engage with them. So in this sense, I suppose, the, the somewhat banal, unusual uses test in creativity research this is the sort of thing that psychologists get up to. How many uses can you think of a paper clip or um, a, a, a brick or, or whatever? Um, that test in itself is, in, if you like, tapping into the multiple affordances that objects and situations bring to the table, bring to us and offer. And there's no obvious means to say whether the affordances as the affordances of the world, in that sense, are finite or potentially infinite, small i for infinite. The second affordances also depend on viewpoint and perspective, and consequently the education of attention and ways of seeing. So what I can see from here, the polite people, um, is not what you can see from there, and vice versa. So position and viewpoint are absolutely critical in terms of the affordances that can be accessed. Crucially, we can interpret see metaphorically here. What I see is influenced by a range of factors such as my knowledge, understanding, motivation, personality, moral training perhaps, and so on. Moreover, what we can see is a joint product of, but not reducible to either first or third person perspective. So the types of perspectives are critical here. Um, second viewpoint is, the, the, the viewpoint needed is quite privileged. Um, an aid memoir here that, that might be useful for us later, it's a very clunky, a clunky analogy, but it, it, it stops us being infested with duck rabbits, at least. Um, 
is to think of there's an illusion which we call the Ames chair, the Ames chair. It's basically seen from most angles. This this particular illusion looks like a random collection of sticks. I don't know if you've ever seen this at all. But seen from a privileged perspective, the sticks cohere and form a chair. I think a few years ago, I'm right in saying, was it the Channel 4 logo used to assemble itself? And it had to get itself into the right position before you could see what was being depicted. So I'm going to use that as a kind of aid memoir, really, a little bit later. I just refer to the Ames chair as a way of thinking how, at some positions and some perspectives, affordances can rather beautifully come together. Then I want to suggest, and this is me now, so you can blame me for this a little bit. I want to suggest there are also hidden affordances. Not everything, um, as I said, is immediately apparent or visible. Do you remember those magic eye illusions that were very popular in the 1990s, I think? They, were, they, they looked like a random set of, of, of coloured dots. This is where I need my visual aids the next time I do this, isn't it? I don't know if this works on the screen anyway. You remember if you can let your focus drift a little bit, it's possible very often to see a three-dimensional object emerge out of the array. Um, I thought I, I discovered a wonderfully creative analogy here, and I was kind of congratulating myself on, on, on doing so. And then needless to say, the day later, I find that a couple of uh, colleagues had, had had exactly the same idea in, in a book on creativity a good while ago. But it's a nice little analogy. Hidden affordances that we don't immediately see, but with a certain way of seeing, can be permitted to reveal themselves. Okay, that's the, that's the kind of preliminaries. And, uh, it's time for So how might all of this help with the moral and the ethical? Um, in his monograph, Ethical Life, uh, Daryl Ford, and, and indeed in his recent UCL um, uh, guest lecture there, so, I'm sorry, not Daryl Ford, wonderful name here, uh, uh, Professor Webb Keen, which I think has to be a wonderful name for the internet age, but... Um, Professor Keane, who is an anthropologist, uses the idea uh, to hold the natural, the biopsychological, and the socio-cultural together in ethical theory. He takes a fairly big pass at this. And Keane notes that affordances are grounded in the potentialities of the world. As he puts it, this places them as explanatory constructs, halfway between scientific reduction on the one hand, reduction just to the world of causes, their only causes and determinisms of matter. And on the other hand, the fluidities of language and culture. So it's essentially what, what Webb Keen is um, saying, um, is that affordances kind of allow us to navigate that space between, on the one hand, a rigid scientism, and on the other, an unbridled or unfettered social constructivism. They, they give us that um, flexibility, if, if you will. As he puts it, they're useful bridges between causality and meaning. They free us from the tyranny of a rigid materialism 
and equal, as I've just said, from an unbridled social constructivism. The world is not a causal straitjacket. I've given up using the word stimuli. I'm going to say next time we do our classes. I really don't want to talk about stimuli anymore. Um, the, the world is not a causal straitjacket. But nor is it completely plastic. Affordances are therefore crucial, we might say, both to the constraints and the freedoms in which our moral life takes place. Um, we could say, I would like to say, that they are, or they help us position, between the implications of the logos of the world and the inferences that we can draw um, from those implications. I, I'm kind of sympathetic to Keane's position. I want to use that as, as the, the backdrop in, in, in moving forward. Now to talk about affordances in virtue acquisition. And um, it's commonplace, I'm on familiar territory, I think here, at least suggesting this, in Thomas circles, at least following Aristotle, to argue that at least the acquired virtues depend on habitus, the deepening, repeated participation in the good, until virtuous acts become, as we would say, dispositional, or dispositions or second nature. But it's worth pointing out, I think, for the record, that the virtue concept has been rather slow to catch on in psychology. Um, it's made a little bit of inroads of late into something called positive psychology. But in general, um, it's not been as influential in moral psychology as, as shall we say, um, theories inspired by Kant's deontology, I'm thinking of people like Kohlberg, or more recently, I would say, uh, Hume's emotivism, if you would look at, say, someone like Jonathan Haidt. Now, such accounts as there are, virtue of it, um, including one advanced by myself and uh, US colleague Timothy Helsey, um, or also our, our colleague Darcia Naves at Notre Dame, have referred to virtues and habits, or habitus, under the rubric of moral expertise, partly to kind of smuggle the Trojan horse into psychology. It's useful to say, this is what we're talking about, we're talking about moral expertise here, uh, without fuller reference to the ontological context. You don't want, or we didn't want, to frighten the horses at that point. I don't want to dwell on these accounts here. Um, instead, I'm, I'm going to draw unapologetically, actually, on some recent uh, Aristotelian scholarship by Margaret Harrison, and, and uh, in particular on her forthcoming paper, which will appear in Phronesis later this year, so around the summer we've got. This is now me living off my daughter's moral earnings, by the way. Um, so any, I have to say this bit too, don't I? So any oversimplifications and misreadings are mine, uh, and I'd urge you to consult the genuine article when it appears, not least for the careful textual references to the textual sources, Aristotelian sources. Um, by the way, in the last couple of days, I've had a Nihil Obstat from Margaret <laughs> so for this section, so I, I'm, I'm going to read the a <coughs> sigh of relief at that point. I wasn't going to be. Um, um, uh, whatever, you know what it's like having um, children. Um, anyway, proud dad notwithstanding, I think hers is an interesting contribution. And it's, it's not the only way to construct this part of the argument. Uh, but it is a helpful one, 
particularly, I think, for those with backgrounds in ancient philosophy and theology. So starting on uh, familiar ground, Margaret has revisited Aristotle's account of moral development as expressed in his ethics, not only, but particularly, actually, in the Nicomachean ethics, but as it interpolated between and inferred a wider view of virtue as expertise from the politics and other works. Um, considering the status of the learner vis-a-vis -vis the fully developed virtuous agent, she argues for some discontinuity between the two, such that the learner may well be performing virtuous actions, but cannot yet be said to be a fully virtuous agent. In her earlier PhD thesis, she suggested it's actually better to reframe the question and ask, not, is, not how is the state of moral virtue acquired, but rather how do we become virtuous agents and to realise mature virtuous activity. Now this is it's, it's obviously a non-Rileyan move, we don't need to kind of unpack the concept of mind here, but it's, it is a non-Rileyan move. And it's a shift of focus away from thinking about how we come to acquire a certain sort of state towards the question of how we become agents of certain sorts. Now focusing on acquisition, virtue acquisition, Margaret reminds us that Aristotle's claim is that virtues are acquired through a process of habituation or the practice of virtuous actions. Nothing particularly new there. But that Aristotle is frustratingly incomplete as to how this occurs and how one becomes a fully virtuous agent. Um, inferring Aristotle's views on learning and the acquisition of expertise from the politics and elsewhere she argues this is through a process which she refers to as emulative imitation or uh, emulation, if you like. What then is, is, is emulative imitation? Well, not simple mimesis, not, not mere copying. At least not where mimesis is understood as a straight imitation of actions or behaviour. She points out that mimesis makes little or no direct appearance in, in any in the Nicomachean ethics. Rather, she reminds us that it's the virtuous agent whom the learner seeks to emulate and so imitate. She is not merely imitating her actions, close quotation. Informally, and this is me now, not Margaret, we might think of pure imitation of action, this is my analogy, as akin to the Brechtian method of acting in the theatre. The purely imitative learner, like the Brechtian actor, goes through the motions, so to speak, but doesn't enter into the character or the worldview of the depicted or imitated other. By contrast, the emulative learner is Stanislavskian, if you know your dramatic um, theory. He or she really gets into the part, trying to get inside the skin of the copied other. Now, crucially then, for our present concerns, she suggests that modelling oneself and one's behaviour on another involves taking their point of view or adopting their perspective. The process is obviously initially perceptual and physical, but again it can be analogised, as, as I was suggesting earlier. I now see what you are saying, and I now see what you are saying. 
but there's more. In adopting the other's perspective, what I see is what the other sees as good or fine, as Aristotle puts it. I see what, what they see as good or fine in the world and in virtuous action. And this is so often an aesthetic appreciation. There's that wonderful phrase from the Mass, which I do so, so love. Me again, not Margaret. The good is seen to be truly right and just. Fitting, or just right, we might say. We see what was previously not so much unseen as unattended or unnoticed. In my terms, we would bring into alignment aspects of the world, previously seen as disconnected. Remember the Ames Chair illusion. So from a privileged perspective, the virtuous agents, the whole, the apparently random collection of sticks, coheres into the chair, or the channel for Logan. This happens to dovetail neatly with an argument of Maxwell Ramstead and co-workers in, in psychology, that the world we inhabit, is, as they put it, is disclosed as a matrix of differentially salient affordances with their own structure and configuration to bring the world round to the right position. Virtuous vision brings these subsets into their proper alignment. I'm going to have to, to move fairly quickly through some of this, but um, she then um, draws on concepts from Demoto Animalium and the De Anima and, and argues that uh, new appreciation can, in principle, lead the virtuous learner to imagine and appreciate future action potentials in the moral landscape. In other words, come to appreciate proleptically potential affordances in possible worlds. And I think that's the kind of route into the more forward-looking moral imagination. Much longer story there in both ancient psychology and ancient philosophy. But she appeals to discussions of uh, phantasmata, or as um, jobbing psychologists would say, imagery, um, in these works to make some of these additional points. Now, if this, if, if this approach is, is sound, at least in its basics, it starts to allow us to connect the virtues with what we already know about other forms of skill, acquisition, and expertise. It emphasizes their social nature, the role of teaching, perspective taking, and prospection. And we start to become able to link all of these with moral affordances. Moral affordances being those views, if you like, of the fine and the good and, uh, and so on. And, that, and I think there is scope for discussion and connections here. It also dovetails in turn, or at least complements, shall we say, work in theology that emphasises the second-person perspective in bringing us to a position where we learn to see what is appropriate and acceptable. But what's happening here is we're trying to push this to um, apply to the acquired as well as the infused virtues. Okay, um, so, so far so good. Can, can we push this any further? Is it possible that there is such a thing as moral virtuosity or moral creativity. I realise actually that the notion of moral creativity might be contentious for a number of reasons. 
in the humanities, for a start, the term creativity is less commonly used than imagination. You find the old book title around these days, a monograph on moral imagination. But I want, I want to just use creativity here, partly because it connects us back into psychological literatures, and partly because it implies some outcome, some, I hesitate to say product, but some result of the imaginative process. But moral creativity? Surely morality is tried and tested, a matter of <coughs> of sticking to the rules, even if you're a, um, a born-again Kantian. I probably didn't remind us, though, that not all morality or ethics is conventional or correlates with the culture in a Tillichian way or otherwise. But isn't creativity itself then something different from habit? Doesn't it involve fresh thinking outside of the box by the lone, solitary genius or whatever? Well, in the standard view of creativity, that seems to be the case. For shorthand, we could call this the cognitive view. The individual thinker works on the problem, perhaps initially fails to uh, solve it, spends some time incubating or allowing the, the mind to go on holiday. If we're lucky, she will have a creative uh, solution, a eureka experience, or, or whatever, and then um, uh, manages to determine that this is actually an appropriate solution, that's the kind of standard four-stage view. Um, but there is some new thinking around them, which has appeared in the last two or three years, to suggest that uh, we might be better thinking of creativity as something carried out by situated social agents. That's to say, not solitary thinkers all the time people in relationship with others, trying to mutually solve problems. Um, accordingly, then, the affordances and situational cues in the world are start to become very important, and the social um, discovery of some of those cues starts to become relevant, too. So Romanian psychologist Vlad Glevianu, an apologist to Professor um, Glevianu for my pronunciation, um, has developed these ideas in his, 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 his embodied, situated and socially related account. I think what's interesting, he suggests that creativity and habit are not entirely different species, are not always entirely different species. So the developing skills of a novice and expert are in many cases, he would say, in many cases, different points on a continuum rather than as it were, qualitatively different um, entities. The skilled practitioner is able not only to perform, but to improvise, and in rare cases to innovate, and making use of such as unexpected affordances as present themselves. If you think about something like uh, jazz music, uh, for example, jazz musicians tend already to be very virtuous musicians. They're already highly skilled musicians. But they're then able, in suitable circumstances, to improvise. In unusual circumstances, they may even be able to completely innovate. Maybe, a, I don't know, a string breaks or a key sticks or something in some sense goes wrong, but they can use that and creatively work with it and, and around it. 
Now, I'm, I'm simply raising the question, this is really all I'm doing this afternoon, as to whether that thumbnail sketch can be carried over tentatively into the moral domain. Um, if it can, a situated view of moral creativity will involve more than just the agent. It entails a social context, the situational affordances again, potentially an audience, and an ability to communicate the product or artefact or solution, be it uh, the uh, Good Friday uh, peace agreement or suggestion in family therapy, or heaven forbid, a novel solution to Brexit. Um, secondly, habit, habitual virtue, at its highest levels, if, if this view has any mileage, can give rise to habitual virtuosity or moral creativity, but not always smoothly. Usually it seems there has to be a deliberate decision to overcome an obstacle, or a, a refraining, a drawing back, a pulling back from the problem, um, and, and allowing a different mode of engagement with the world to, to take place. Um, so both the standard and situated accounts, that's the, the, the older and the newer accounts of creativity, have in common the idea that creativity often involves a temporal break from the routine. The second nature solution does seem to be interrupted at some stage, even if it's brought us thus far when we meet a particular problem. Uh, there has to be, as I said, a drawing back. I think it involves what, what William Desmond, in a different place, would call the passio ascendi, the patience of being rather than the canatus ascendi, the, the, the striving of being. And by letting go and ad adopting this particular attitude, I want to suggest we open ourselves to what, I guess for shorthand, I've, I've been calling the magic eye stage, where previously unnoticed and invisible aspects of affordances can come into focus. <coughs> now how does that accord with what we actually know about moral creativity. We don't know a great deal about it. As psychologists now, I'm simply arguing in this way. Literature is fairly sparse. But in his, I think, rather fascinating book, The Moral Imagination, Notre Dame academic and peace theorist, peacemaker, um, with extensive experience, points up this, this business of drawing back. There's a quotation, I won't read it all out, it's on the handout there. This notion of um, the more elusive the solution seemed to be, and the more I needed to let go and discover the unexpected along the way. I find myself reflecting my greatest contributions didn't seem to be those that had emerged from my accumulated skill or intentional purpose. They were those that happened unexpectedly. Now, I think, actually, I think John Lederach is being unduly modest here because he's probably underestimating the accumulated skills and expertise that he can bring to bear into uh, peace-making contexts. But that aside, um, it, it, it is obvious that there seem to be particular skills of waiting, patient waiting, watching, listening, and being prepared for the unexpected that he emphasises time and time again. He himself, it appears, is a, a keen writer of haikus, and he refers to what he calls, not the eureka moment, but the haiku moment. The point at which a solution not only appears, but importantly can be summarised succinctly and easily communicated. 
So there's an elegance again, an aesthetic elegance, and a just-right feel. In our terms, the magic eye picture emerges, and I can tell you what it is. Now, what I find intriguing is he refers to this state of readiness as involving what he calls divine naivete. Divine naivete. And I think you've another quotation <coughs> there in front of you. Divinus has pointed to something transcendent, unexpected, but that led toward insight and better understanding. To see what is not readily planned for nor apparent, however, requires a peripheral type of vision, a willingness to move sideways and even backward to move forward. The ability to make that movement requires naivete, an innocence of expectation that watches carefully for the potential of building change in good and difficult times. Divine naivety and serendipity share this in common. They both foster the art of the possible. And my translation of the art of the possible is they make us more open to the potential of the world things, or if you like, to the affordances that it is offering us. They make us alert to and foster the art of the possible. And that for me then, and this is again from, from high altitude, I'm aware of that, raises I think the notion of spiritual affordance, or at least a possibility of this, and some wider theological considerations. So the last section you'll be glad to hear. I've actually said very little, probably said nothing really, of theological import thus far, save to imply fairly strongly that the world is somehow theophanic, if you like, that there is more to the world than meets the eye, and that it somehow reveals the good, or at least has the potential to reveal the good. I've attempted to describe how our growing sensitivity to the good, the true and the beautiful, uh, develops with the acquisition and refinement of virtue. If this argument is right, we are creatures able to move from an inability to perceive the good properly through a stage where, with the help of others, we become aware of previously unattended, or at least unnoticed good, the Ames chair stage. And here what we're doing is seeing the already visible, but from an improved perspective. And so then I want to suggest with patience, discernment, faith, and hope in the future, and maybe even love for their fellow uh, humans, seem to be able to see as visible uh, or otherwise perceptible the good that was previously invisible to many, what I've called the magic eye stage of uh, moral creativity. What about Lederach's intriguing comment, what about the notion of divine naivete? A sense somehow of the transcendent somehow lurking behind and within all this imminence, radical or otherwise. Now, I'm going to suggest that some are further gifted, and I use that word knowing that it carries a lot of freight. Some are further gifted to, to grasp the import of this. And they then are able, I would suggest, to appreciate affordances of the invisible in the visible. Not the visible in the previously invisible, but now the invisible in the visible. 
This is, these are, of course, then intimations of the eternal universal, the god of, I suppose, possibility in, in every particular of their life. Like Blake, William Blake, looking at some of his work while I was waiting earlier. They see the universe in a grain of sand, or with Dame Julian, you remember the wonderful hazelnut, uh, however tiny is loved and created by God, he's holding it in being. <coughs> Or they have quasi-wordsworthy insights as to the source of the world's being. Now, which, $64,000 question, which theological system might make sense of some of this? Well, <clears throat> we seem at least to need a God, we certainly need a God, but we need a God who is upholding everything that is, seen and unseen, as we say somewhere. And also all that it is possible to be. So the risk of disloyalty to um, <coughs> the angelic doctor, I think the account of God as depicted in Nicholas of Cuse's De Possessed and De Apici Theoriae, the height of theory, is actually I find very useful here. How can you tell I what point I was a student of Johannes Paul? Um, throughout his many dialogues, Cuse's unwavering in his claim that God is, surprisingly, ultimately unknowable by being beyond all human opposition and distinction. In De Possessed, the distinctions God possesses, or, or, or rather Cusa considers, I should say, are between possibility, actuality, and actualized possibility. And reflecting on these, Cusa develops what I now think of as both a wonderful anthropology, at least potentially, and theology of affordance. I think that's what he's given us. He holds fast to the idea that creation is unfolded from God, who is nevertheless revealed, for those with eyes to see, in creation. He reminds us first, what we've got to then initially mount up from any given visible creature, and the quotation is there again, to its invisible beginning. When I say that it is now evident to us that God is the simple beginning of the world, first quotation. Now, this is the God, and you find this paragraph after paragraph sounds this litany in De Possessed. This is the God who exists before actuality that is distinct from possibility, and before possibility that is distinct from actuality. But all things that exist after him, that's us and tables and chairs and Donald Trump, um, exist with their possibility and their actuality distinct. Hence God alone is what he is able to be. But no creature, whatever, is what it is able to be. There's an endless possibility in all entities. Since possibilities in actuality are identical only in the beginning, that's to say only in God. So for Cusa, God underwrites possibility, actuality, and actualized possibility. And so as he puts it, God must be prior in the logical sense to all of these. The title of the meditation, De Possessed, is, as you, some of you probably know, is a, a Cusan blend of possibility or potential, possible and being, Hesse, and neologism. To paraphrase Cusa, we 
might risk saying, when referring to God as possessed, that God is the perfect affordance or afforder of all affordances in their actualities. Hugh's accuser next week will give us a different meditation and say, This is the final one. And then the next week, and this is the final one. Because, like good theology, he always wants to shift his, his ground and swap his analogies. But if we stay with this one for the moment, we might want to say, God is the afforder of all what is. He's both potential and actualized potential behind all finite things or possibilities. So this means that the plenitude of things and the potentially infinite possibilities, there may be potentially infinite. By the way, infinities in this world can be infinite yet bounded. Mathematicians will remind us that there are an infinite set of um, real numbers between naught and one, but obviously they're bound between naught and one. So human infinities are not necessarily arbitrary in that kind of infinite sense, but they might they might potentially be uh, infinite. Now I want to suggest we might again risk connecting this in more detail with our earlier discussion of affordance. First, as the world itself is obviously not God, it's not fully expressed. It can still be what it is not. Quotation again, I think you've got the beginning does not exhaust its omnipotent power in anything which is able to be. And so no created thing is, capital A, capital P, this fully actualized possibility. Therefore every created thing is able to be what it is not. Only the beginning, God, because it is actualized possibility itself, is able to be, uh, is not able to be what it is now. So there's thus more to the world than meets the eye, and even what is in principle knowable. Um, <coughs> let me see if I can abbreviate this a little bit. To see that there's more to be seen and said and, and, and heard and understood, I guess we need only reflect that sunlight in after a fashion affords green plants. Stardust affords the evolution of people. Touch affords compassionate touch and gestures. And bread and wine afford our sharing in the divinity of Christ. And this excess necessarily, I think, forecloses our understanding of God. We can't understand the world in its its fullness. Therefore, almost by definition, we can't understand so Cusa's vision, we're nearly there, is of a world replete with unrealised possibility, pointing beyond itself to something or someone who is ultimately unknowable, a good orthodox position. The world's radical and excessive imminence, then, expressed through its affordances, we might say, is thus part and parcel of its transcendence and vice versa. Grasping this, intuitively or otherwise, is to appreciate the world's spiritual affordances, or at least the possibility of them. Now I want to suggest, really, to, to start to wind this up, that this spiritual and ultimately, I want to say, sacramental dynamic <coughs> is what is at work in Lederach's peacekeeping. I haven't met John Lederach, he strikes me as a, that he is a very virtuous man with great spiritual sensitivity. And I also suspect it's there in words with moral sense, 
you remember that uh, a famous stanza from the table, tables turned, one impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. And if you think about the rest of the Wordsworthian corpus, whether it's Tintin Abbey or intimations of immortality and so on, um, <coughs> you get that sense of um, transcendence behind uh, all that it is. Now, if Lederach's intuitions are right, moral creativity both depends on and in turn heightens the spiritual sensitivity of this sort. But I think Wordsworth's claim might be correct as well. We should let nature be our teacher. As we begin to intuit its hidden source, and we may learn from it as we approach it, or more from it, if we approach it as already moral beings. To conclude, um, from a purely secular view, whenever we discover new ethical affordances about our world, we begin to realise the world's moral possibilities. We make them apparent and potentiate it then feels like we are doing something new. We're being creative. From a more theological perspective, though, we can only discover and realise potentialities and actualities that are already continuously upheld by God. The world is all that is the case, for sure, but so much is hidden in that word, all. Okay. The world is suffused with and supported by an imaginable possibility. Or whenever we actualise some of its possibilities, we help the world effect and reveal what it always already signifies, the plenitude of its source. In Cusin terms, I'm switching registers all the time, I know that. In Cusin terms, we help unfold and make more apparent for others what is always already enfolded in God. And that, I think, is partly what's entailed by being a co-creator, moral, artistic, scientific, practical, or otherwise, as we become what Cusin would call the painted painters or living images of God. Thank you very much for your discernment and patience.